Welcome back to this third and final part on the microbiome. Uh, I'm again joined by Erin, Rebecca and Anna. And in the last couple of podcasts, we've covered some amazing topics. So thinking about the role or not for prebiotics, for probiotics, for postbiotics terms that I didn't really understand uh, 20 minutes ago. And now in this final bit, I just want to pick up FMT again. Anna and I have covered this in a in a great podcast with Mimi Wang, but really keen to think about the research aspects and where we might be going. So Anna, maybe if you can just start by reminding us what FMT means. So FMT is faecal microbiota transfer. So essentially we are transferring the faeces of somebody into somebody else. And the setting that it's historically you know, used in and we use it in the UK is patients who've got a, a refractory C. difficile infection. So patients who we can't get better following C. difficile infection with, with antibiotic treatment can receive uh, on the NHS um, FMT transfer. Um, and we do see really good responses from that. We've then extrapolated that to say, actually, if it causes benefit in that setting, can it cause benefit in immunotherapy-induced colitis? So, i.e., can we take the microbiome, essentially, because that, that, that is what it is doing, taking the microbiome of one person with um, a healthy gut and um, no, no significant medical issues and transfer that into the gut of somebody who's got chronic inflammation, and do we see benefit? And what Mimi um, showed in her in her in her most recent data and we discussed on a previous podcast was that actually that shows phenomenal um, responses in people who have got what we would consider to be refractory colitis so patients who have got lots and lots and lots of inflammation they've been given lots of different drugs to try and calm the immune system down to no effect actually then seem to get benefit from having a, a fecal, a fecal micro microbiota transfer and then also what we've looked at is if you do that as the first treatment, so you don't give lots and lots of immunosuppression, but you give that as the first treatment, can that also be beneficial? And we've also seen good responses there. So we know that in the inflammatory setting, restoring your sort of gut barrier and also what you know, replacing or changing the, the sort of constituents of your gut microbiome appear to result in a reduction of inflammation, and that would feed very much into the talk earlier about you know increasing T regulatory cells. That would absolutely make sense. So I suppose the question is, can we optimise? the gut microbiome um, prior to treatment. And again, as we've discussed before, we don't know that yet. But one of the ways we could think about doing that is by faecal transfer. You know, there are other conversations about can you give an, an, an oral supplementation and does that lead to, to broadening of your repertoire or complexity of your, of your gut microbiome? But faecal, faecal transplant or transfer is something that certainly could be done. And actually we have, so in the UK, we have two uh, sort of, Two national stool banks, one in London and one in Birmingham, and they they provide for research and for C diff infection to the country. So they can either do the do the procedures in those locations, or they can send stool out to the to the to the regional centres, and they can they can do um, FMT locally. So there are mechanisms by which you can make this more of a thing. It's very much not a commonly placed thing, certainly in the UK at the moment. But theoretically, with with the buy-in of our gastroenterology colleagues and the understanding of the benefit that would give, logistically, it could be doable for a portion of patients. I don't think it would be it ever get to the point where this is something that we could do for everyone. Um, but theoretically feasible for a proportion of people if it was felt to be needed, either from a toxicity perspective 
or potentially from a response perspective, but we'd need to really understand whether that truly gave benefit and, and how that worked in reality before we we looked at it. So it'd be really interesting to get Rebecca and Erin's thoughts on this. Yeah, so I think faecal transplant space, uh, in terms of early clinical trials, particularly in the response setting and augmenting um, anti-tumor immune responses or um, promoting the efficacy, there's definitely quite a few phase one, phase two trials in this space. Um, I think it comes down to questions like who is the best donor? Is it a healthy donor? Is it, there's some trials which use um, um, donor samples from um, pathological complete response responders or patients that had durable responses for uh, a sustained period of time. And I think these are questions which can only really be answered with trials. And I think um, one of the benefits um, of fecal transplants is you can start to answer questions around or bypass um, what is um, what good microbes are and um, giving these potential beneficial microbes in the context of their whole ecosystem rather than just pinpointing individual microbes and I guess giving these as probiotics. I think this is a yeah potential um, setting that's definitely of interest. Really useful, really useful. Okay, so final thing, couple of things, which, um, Anna, maybe I'll come to you from a clinical spin and then just, you know, come to Erin and Rebecca and see if there's any research in this space. So two things that we often um, allude to whenever we get into this space is antibiotics and PPIs. And, and ultimately, we always come back to a conversation about them because it, you know, for me, it feels like this is part of the microbiome conversation. So clinically at the moment, Anna, I think where we are, but then let's see if you're anywhere different and see if there's any research going on that I'm not aware of, that we're saying that antibiotics seem to be most detrimental in those first few weeks prior to starting treatment and those first few weeks that you start your treatment. That looks like the space where we want to avoid where we can broad spectrum antibiotics unless we've got good justification. Is there any update on that as of today for you? And then I guess Rebecca and Erin, is there anything going on in the research space that we should know about um, that, that, that might impact our position going forward? Anna? No, I think that 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 seems to be where we are. I, th I think it's incredible. The antibiotic conversation is incredibly difficult, and that's because of the patient populations we're treating. In a perfect world that wasn't actually a human being living life and and having all their comorbidities, absolutely true. I think you know it's about making sure we're making really clinically informed choices and not trigger giving antibiotics when they may not be needed. So that you know we we obviously treat a huge number of people with non-small cell lung cancer, with background of COPD in winter, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say that we, you know, wouldn't want to give the impression that we shouldn't give antibiotics to people we think have genuinely got infections because ultimately they can lead to very poor outcomes. But it's about making sure that we're, we're convinced that that's what we should be doing. You know, do this, does this person need an antibiotic? Am I giving it because I think they've got an infection or am I giving it as an insurance policy? What am I giving? Am I giving really broad spectrum antibiotics or am I giving narrow spectrum antibiotics that I can, that I can tailor to whatever I think this infection is? So it's, it, I think all of those things are still true. We do think that antibiotics around the beginning of immunotherapy 
possibly lead to reduction in response. But equally, if you die of an infection, then you can't treat your cancer because there's no point anymore. So it's just getting that balance right. But I think, you know, we are just, I think, sort of discussing and talking about a bit more caution than throwing broad spectrum antibiotics. And we know that oncologists, we're really good at throwing broad spectrum antibiotics at anything and anybody because we have, we have for a long time been been in a place where a lot of our patients get neutropenic sepsis so I think it's just having that just a little bit more thought processes about it just a little bit more consideration and some close monitoring and also making sure that we're not giving too broad and too longer antibiotic course but I but I would say you know obviously we do need to treat people if we think they've got infections we just need to be a little bit more sensitive about what it is we're we're giving and how long we're giving it for. Okay Uh, Rebecca Erin any thoughts on that? Yes I mean you know the as the more evidence emerges, it, it's it's only getting stronger in that direction, exactly what you described, Anna. So it is um, associated with a poorer response to immunotherapy. And I think also in some studies, also a little bit of a link to maybe some of the, the colitis type um, toxicities as well. So, you know, if it is possible to avoid, I think all the evidence points in that direction. But as you say, you know, there are situations where an antibiotic is going to save someone's life. So it has to be a, a decision that's made for every individual patient. But, um, yeah, if if they can be avoided, um, you know, that should be that should be a, a part of the thought process. I think it's really interesting also about the colitis side of things. So we often have this conversation about, you know, is it, you know, people have had recent antibiotics, have they got diarrhea because they've got, because they've had antibiotics or because they've got IO-induced colitis? And I think sometimes what we're seeing is that that's actually a, a, a composite of both. It's sort of a, an additive effect and that you kind of, you have sort of two mechanisms going on and that causes immune recruitment and then you get, you get toxicity in the bowel as a result of sort of other, other mediation. So it, it, Again, it's just making sure that we're thinking about the whole picture, because obviously if you've got somebody who's had antibiotics and they get and they get diarrhea, they could then be given four to six weeks of steroids. So it's just which we don't necessarily need. So I think it's just a case, again, of of sort of just keeping quite a close eye on the patient. And that's one of the big challenges, certainly in our UK practice. And I'm sure that's true across the world is that actually when patients get sick, they need quite close monitoring and actually to optimise giving them treatment when they need it but not giving them too much or too long you actually need to have quite a good process for monitoring whether they're improving or not and I think you know we, we talk about this a lot Ricky about how our services need to be set up to, to do this but every conversation we have I think it becomes more relevant that it's about making sure that we've got eyes on on these patients and and, and what's happening to them and it's a little bit different from from other systemic anti-cancer therapy and the way that we've had oncological practices before because of all of these nuances that are increasingly clear that they are relevant and important yeah and 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 we we won't get into this today anna but it, it it brings me my thoughts back to that prehab space is there these sort of things we can be doing in that prehab space trying to reduce antibiotic use trying to optimize the bugs that they you know the microbiome varying it and i think we're not quite there yet but I can easily see a world where there will be a prehab space where you're not just optimizing them physically, but you're optimizing them dietary wise. You're optimizing other medications they're on. You know, I, I see that world probably not a million miles away. Yeah, and I, I think that's really true. And I think that kind of brings us on. You know, the other the other drug we always we always talk about is is PPIs and um, 
and and what we do with them and I think you know we still very much live in a in a country where PPIs are hugely um hugely dispensed most patients that come to us are on them we then often give people steroids and we want to make sure they've got gastric protection so so I think we have a a, a really high proportion of patients who are on on PPIs and I think increasingly um we as a community are recognizing that might not necessarily be be ideal I think there's a number of reasons for that you know obviously it changes the it changes the 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 gut homeostasis it changes the gas the gastric ph i think also you know they have got side effects particularly can cause kidney impairment and and deranged electrolytes and we've got some some evidence although be it in small numbers that ppis potentially um predict for or will make having nephritis more likely on checkpoint inhibitors so i think there are certain drugs that again in that prehab space is about doing that concomitant medication review and actually thinking about stopping some of the things not because they directly interact in a traditional sense but because they potentially interact with the way the, with the mechanism and the way things the way things are going to work and all the other bits that sort of all the other sort of elements that then interact with whether you get a response to immunotherapy and I think whenever we have these conversations and 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 fantastic guests on talking to about all these elements it just it just always makes me reflect on the fact that it's just not as simple as giving a drug and getting a response it's so it's so multifaceted and I think that's why this space is so different compared to something like chemotherapy where there's such a a clear drug drug tumor interaction it doesn't have all of this complexity because actually it, it's a completely different mechanism. And I, and I think it's really interesting as we explore all these angles that you're right, our sort of pre- preamble into treatment may start to look very different because actually we want to optimise all of these elements for a patient. Obviously, we need more information to be able to do that at the moment. But we're starting with, you know, prehab and perihab exercise. And I think it will continue with that sort of all of these elements that we're starting to try and um, remove or, or or enhance as t- as time goes on. Love that. Okay, so that 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 transitions me beautifully, Anna, into my final question for Erin and Rebecca. You know, this is so. I you know, massive thank you. You know, as a as a treating oncologist, but also just you know in for the scientific community that the two of you are so heavily invested in this space and and the work you've done has been you know frankly I think incredible what would you say is the things that you're looking at at the moment or you know groups that you're involved in looking at where where where's the next development coming what are you excited about where do we think we might be over the next five years so maybe let's just finish on that you know what are you doing at the moment what are you interested in where how are we going to be able to improve patients outcomes over the next five years do you think um i think what i guess the exciting part of Thinking about the microbiome is the fact that we can modulate it. So I definitely think that how we go about modulating it, what the best strategy is, how it even works is definitely areas of ongoing um, research. Um, as particularly things like how your baseline microbiome, like what an individual already has present will influence um, how you respond to these different interventions, as well as um, potentially who are the best people we should be giving these interventions. I don't think um, microbiome interventions are going to um, be beneficial in terms of improving responses um, for all patients. Uh, there's probably different factors which have different um, impacts in different people. I think that's an area of interest, how tumour factors relate to microbiome factors and how these all play together. Erin? Yeah, so 
I think the other area that we should really mention is is the toxicities. Um, you know, these are a big issue for many, many patients and it, it limits how much immunotherapy can be used. And I think particularly colitis and other sort of barrier sites where there are microbes, there's real potential to, to have an impact. So that's what I'm really excited about over the in the coming years, you know, we are in a, still in a research stage, but can we identify biomarkers to better predict patients who are at high risk of developing toxicities? And then, you know, are there strategies that we can use? And obviously the microbiome is our area of, of interest to target there where we can try and um, put the patient in a, a better situation to avoid um, these toxicities. And to be able to actually do that, we need to understand which microbes and which dietary nutrients are the ones um, that are either having, you know, causing a greater risk or or associated with protection. Um, so I think to be able to reduce toxicities would be would be a huge benefit. Music to my ears. I couldn't agree more. I think, obviously, you know, I'm an oncologist. I'm always really interested in efficacy, but I think the toxicity burden of these of these therapeutics is massive for patients and for healthcare systems, as is the the burden of immunosuppression. So, if there's a way of optimizing the microbiome to prevent them, but also potentially to to improve outcomes and and reduce down severity. All of those things are hugely, certainly exciting for me as a, as a to, you know, toxicity specialist. Um, and I think it, absolutely. And it's so nice to hear that we're, we're talking about the two things in tandem. And actually, we know that, you know, the efficacy and toxicity is so so sort of integrated with each other. It's really nice to think about how we target both those things alongside each other. I think that's really, I would agree, really, really exciting. Yeah. And, and and just to finish, I think, you know, Anna and I are always saying at the end of podcasts about the importance of getting more research and prospective research. And so to have two people on who are clearly doing so much in such a concerted way to bring the field forward is is a real privilege and honour and, and, and a massive thank you for, for joining us today. So I will bring this to a close. Thank you so much. Uh, we'd love to have you back on maybe in 12 months time to say where we are and where we're going next. But um, uh, massive thank you on behalf of Anna and I uh, for joining today. Uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. We'll enjoy the rest of our day. And thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thanks both. Thank you so much.